good morning. How are we doing this morning? Cold front is headed this way, so tomorrow should be a fantastic day. Knock on wood, I shouldn't have said anything. Uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, if you are new, a couple quick things. Well, a couple quick things for everybody, but especially if you're new. My name is Jason Hatch. Uh, I'm the lead and the teaching pastor here at Redeemer. Such a great uh, honor and privilege for me. Uh, and on behalf of the church, I want to welcome you. Uh, if you are new, maybe first time in this room or been around a few weeks or a few months, uh, we say this every Sunday, but we, we really want would love to connect with you. Uh, the way that you could help us connect with you is two things. Uh, text connect to the number here on the screen and we'll send you a digital connect form. Uh, or on your way out, swing by the tent right outside the doors here and someone from the welcome team will be there. You can ask any questions they might have, uh, find out how to get uh, connected to the church and just the things that are going on uh, in the life of the church. But just hear from us. We're, we're so glad that you're here. I would love to connect with you. Uh, second announcement is for the men in the room. Uh, what do you want to say, men, say, ugh. It's like a little Tim the Toolman Taylor action there. Uh, if you are a man of any age, let me invite you and urge you, just borderline beg you, uh, to come to 360 Man. We're kicking it back up this Wednesday, so we've taken a little bit of a hiatus for the summer, uh, but it is back this Wednesday morning uh, in the basement, uh, once again, of the Apex Building right there, kind of by Claydesta off of the corner of uh, Big Spring and Wadley. Uh, starts at 6.30, but you can get there 6.15. We'll have free breakfast burritos, coffee coffee, uh, a really good solid time to have some uh, Bible teaching that applies directly to men. I'm excited about the topic for this week. I won't tell you what it is. You have to show up, but uh, I think it will bless you. Uh, and it's just been such an incredible thing to be able to connect with other like-minded men on the same journey. So men, this Wednesday, 630. And last announcement for this morning is huge, probably deserves a, uh, what is it? A drum roll, please. Tonight, Tonight, 4.30, big, big thing in the, 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 the seven and a half year history and who knows how far into the future in the life of Redeemer, but vision and worship night tonight that we're going to be celebrating God's goodness to us. <coughs> excuse me, uh, as a church family, uh, and we're going to be looking forward into the future, talking about details with the land that we have purchased, the building project that's going on, and uh, just a lot of really important things uh, in the life and future of Redeemer. Would highly, highly encourage you to come. Uh, and we do have, uh, we have child care for this tonight, just zero to five years old. And if that applies to you, uh, we do need you to RSVP. So uh, you can... Um, text child care to this number, and we'll throw this back up at the end of the service so that you can have that. But we want everyone to be able to be involved. So if that helps you out, uh, sign up for zero to five-year-old child care, and then every other kid is welcome in this room. Speaking of, uh, there's a lot of kids in the room, uh, and praise the Lord for that. I just want to give a little uh, quick shout out to two things. One, kids of any age are always welcome in here. Uh, we think it's just really important to be able to worship with your family, to watch your mom, to watch your dad, and to learn what it means uh, to worship God. Uh, also, I think it's really important that they're part of Redeemer Kids. So uh, what I would recommend, this is what the Hatch family does most of the time, uh, pick a service where you serve somewhere. Uh, we would love to have you. We, we need you to serve somewhere. Let your kids um, get some connection with some other kids their age and Bible teaching for them and Redeemer Kids and then worship together as a family. But uh, they're always welcome in here and it's exciting to have them. All right, if you are ready for uh, Christianity 101, say Jesus. 
and turn to Matthew chapter 16. Um, I will catch up with you uh, there in just a few moments. Uh, So again, we're walking through this summer what we are calling Christianity 101, just trying to cover the basics, the very, very important foundational things. Two reasons. One, so many new people. Uh, We've got new people every week, and so we never want to take for granted things that we talked about uh, six months ago, 12 months ago, 18 months ago. Uh, We want to cover those, especially for people that are brand new to the faith, brand new to the Bible, brand new to Jesus, want to cover some foundational things. Two, it's just uh, incredibly important for us to be reminded, even if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, the very basic things. But you probably have noticed um, that we have covered a lot of topics, right? And I I was thinking about this this week, uh, and I want to to mention this because there are a lot of things God cares about, okay? A lot of things that we could categorize as very important, very foundational, and I wanted to say that. That's pretty obvious, but that that comes with a little bit of a word of caution um, that over the years, I have noticed that some people tend to um, really become very passionate and rightfully so, about one issue and then latch onto that and become what I would call single-issue voters where they're just constantly focused in on that. Uh, and, and sometimes, like, like I'm all for passion and excited about one certain thing. Let me just run through a few things we can and should be excited about. Uh, discipleship, that's a big deal, okay? Uh, missions, getting the gospel to unreached people group, that's a big deal. Evangelism to people in our city, that's a big deal. Uh, learning how to raise our kids in the Lord, that's a big deal talking about marriage uh, and just having a healthy marriage and being a a healthy, godly husband and wife. That's a big deal. Uh, What does it mean that we're made in the image of God and that we bear the image of God and the sanctity of life from the womb to the tomb? That is a big deal. Uh, Finances, big deal. Adoption, foster, and all the implications of the gospel, cultural issues going on. Uh, And I could go for a long time. What I'm saying is there are a whole lot of things that God has given the church to care about. And we we need to be passionate. Maybe you're like, well, there's one of those that I am particularly passionate about. Praise the Lord. But we need to be careful about being a single issue voter because this is what I've noticed. If we only zero in and care about one thing, we don't recognize that God has given us a lot of things as a church to care about. Are y'all with me? So we need people that are passionate and that, that speak for and push certain things. But we all have to recognize, like if you're just pick one of these, like that's my thing. Um, you're going to, the, the temptation is to be like at the expense of everything else and you'll always be frustrated that we'll never be able to talk or preach or push enough on that one issue. Uh, I just felt like that might be helpful. We need people that love certain things and have a a God-given passion for things and also to recognize it's a big book and there are a lot of things for us to be concerned about and give our lives to. That was free. Uh, Let me get to, to Matthew chapter 16. The topic for today uh, for Christianity 101 is the church, okay? Everybody say church. I know when I say church, all sorts of different things come flooding into your mind. Uh, Maybe you've had a good experience with a church. Maybe you've had a bad experience. Maybe you've had no experience. Uh, I won't get into all of the different options for the things that come in. Um, But what we want to do is go all the way back to uh, the, the mind and the heart of Christ, who is the one who created the idea and the purpose of the church. And that's what we're going to be looking at in Matthew 16. And we just have to recognize that this 
is uh, just an incredibly central, a monster, monster theme of the Bible is the church. Uh, Just a couple things for you to consider before we get there. Uh, Jesus says he gave his life very uniquely for the church. Uh, We're going to look at that in Ephesians. He laid his life down for the church. Jesus loves the church. He gave himself up for the church. Uh, That should mean something to us. Uh, Number two, that this, the the church is, think about it as a vehicle. The church is the chosen vehicle to get the glory of God through the gospel to the nations. That's plan A and there is no plan B. Okay. To the extent other, other things, other parachurch organizations and other uh, nonprofits and good things uh, support the, the local church, it's good, but that's where he has put all of his hope and all of his uh, power is through the the local church. That is his plan A. That's uh, something to note. Uh, And also, we talked about this the last few weeks, but uh, God's plan, his design for every single Christian is to be connected to, involved with, attached to a part of a local church we keep going. If Ephesians 3 says, just to, I don't have time to unpack all of this, but this is God's chosen method to display his wisdom to not just the globe, but uh, he talks about the cosmos uh, to display something really incredible to uh, all of the, the spiritual beings that are out there. Uh, and then I will say in the United States, uh, culture, it's, I think, a very um, bad trend where, uh, you know, if, I think you and I would agree that over time, if we're growing as Christians, we should learn to have the same priorities as Jesus. And this is what I see, and that statistics would show this, that Jesus loves the church, has a high priority for the church. And for a lot of Western uh, Americans, the priority for the church is going in an opposite way that that Jesus has. So it's an important thing uh, for us to talk about. One last thing, and then we'll jump into Matthew 16. I want to frame just how important the church is to the mission of Jesus on planet earth. So I'm going to back up to Genesis. We're going to look at this promise of something that God said he will do. We're going to fast forward to futuristic times in Revelation, looking back when he says there's something he has done, and then we'll come just parachute land right in the middle. Genesis 22 Uh, God is speaking to uh, an older man that we know of as Abram. God changes his name basically to Abraham. He promises he's going to birth a nation and do something really unprecedented and crazy on the planet through this. And this is what he says. Okay, God to Abraham, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring, okay? That is a singular masculine pronoun. He's not talking about the nation of Israel. He's talking about one person. Abraham, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, like that's a sermon in and of itself. There's a, he's like, Abe, uh, th- th- I'm going to bless you, but I'm going to do something through this one person that's going to come from your lineage, that's going to possess the gates of his enemies. Tuck that in your brain for a few moments. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, when we hear nations, we hear geopolitical nations, Canada, United States, Mexico. Uh, when that word shows up in the Bible, it's normally ethnos, at least in Greek, uh, same idea in the Old Testament. 
Testament. Uh, the idea is it's a tribe, a, a, a small, distinct people group with distinct language, distinct culture. What an unbelievable promise that God makes Abraham that he says, I am going to do something through one man that is going to bless every single little bitty tribe across planet Earth, and it's going to push back basically the gates of hell. He's going to occupy the gate of his enemies. That's the promise in Genesis looking forward, okay? Pretty bold promise to uh, an old man without kids, right? Actually had a kid at this point. Let's fast forward to Revelation. So this is something that will, will take place in the future. This is looking back. Revelation uh, 7, 9 through 10. John, the apostle John is the one that wrote Revelation. God gave him this very special revelation of mostly things that were uh, in time. And he says this, after this, I looked and behold. So this is like a picture he gets of a future moment, like in, in heaven, okay? Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. There are, the, the way that sociologists would, uh, would define nations, there are upwards of 10,000 people groups, nations on planet earth. And, and this says that there will be someone in that crowd from every single one, from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes. That means they're Christians. They've been forgiven. They get to wear white to this ceremony because Jesus said we could. With palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation, okay, uh, crying out with a loud voice. I don't know if you know this, but maybe that's singing, maybe that's crying, but they're excited, they're loud, so we get to participate in that this side of glory. Amen? Oh my gosh. <laughs> We're just talking about crying out with a loud voice, and you're like, amen. All right. You see the irony in that? Crying out with a loud voice. All God's people said? You're getting there. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, okay? Genesis looking forward. I'm going to do something on planet Earth that's going to push back the darkness that is going to get to every people group. Revelation looks back. It's like it's done. It's accomplished. The, the darkness has been pushed back. There's a representative from every nation, tribe, tongue, lang tongue language worshiping Jesus as Lord God, Savior, and King. And right in the middle, the big question is, well, how does he intend? to do it? How is he going to do what he said he would do in Genesis, what he's accomplished by Revelation 7, Matthew chapter 16? Uh, this is what it says. We're going to go verses 13 through 18. Now, when Jesus, everybody say Jesus. All right. Now, when Jesus, okay? Um, I'm just going to work my way slowly through this text and just explain things as we go. Uh, what, what Jesus is about to say that he is going to accomplish, uh, if you were there that day, we, you know, we, we, have, we have history that kind of, we, we got a lot more information and more to do with, so it's hard to imagine ourselves sometimes in the moments in the context where these things took place. But he would have been the most unlikely candidate to, to start any kind of movement, movement that would outlast his life. He was a single unmarried man. Uh, he was not highly educated, did not come from a, a family with any kind of political influence, uh, not on a grand scale of the nation, not even on a city scale. He didn't inherit any kind of uh, profitable business. He was a single 
rabbi with 12 very ragtag dudes that followed around with him, that followed him around, and uh, he was homeless for most of his ministry, incredibly poor. There was just nothing about him that would make you think he could actually even get close to pulling off what he's going to say he can do, okay? Um, I, you know, I think about the 12 men that he was given, these 12, uh, they, they weren't straight out of seminary and Bible school and had this pedigree uh, and this influence. Uh, they were just this ragtag group of guys. I don't know if y'all ever seen the movie, The Replacements, anybody? It's like this hilarious movie, uh, Keanu Reeves, Gene Hackman, where there's like a strike and all the NFL players go on strike. So he just goes out to get like uh, kind of the second-rate second dudes uh, that are coming. Uh, this is kind of how I think about Jesus' disciples, kind of like the replacements, right? They weren't coming out of seminary. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors, a bunch of ragtag guys. He pulls those guys together. And so young, single, unmarried, poor Jesus gets his ragtag buddies, and they go on a camping trip, right? They go on a trip. Uh, up to, well, it says, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, okay? In uh, the, the New Testament, there are two Caesareas, uh, one Caesarea Maritima or Maritime, which is on the Mediterranean Sea, and Caesarea Philippi, which is 120 miles north uh, of Jerusalem, where Jesus spent most of his time. Uh, that is probably the furthest he ever traveled from home. Uh, no doubt would have taken probably a couple weeks to get there uh, if they were taking their time. Uh, but that's where, Je so you got Jesus and you got these 12 guys and on a very specific mission with a very specific thing in his mind, he takes them 120 miles north. That's like, you know, from here to Lubbock-ish. I should have checked that. It's probably further. And they go to Caesarea. And Caesarea Philippi was just, no, it was somewhat like Vegas. Like Vegas, if you say Vegas, there are certain cultural things that are attached with that, right? Uh, there are certain things that were attached to Caesarea. Uh, it was a hub of idolatry, uh, of pagan worship. There was a god there named Pan that was uh, seen as the god of for fertility. Uh, and you know when somebody decides they're going to have a god of fertility, nothing good comes from that. Uh, a whole bunch of sexual sin, a whole bunch of... Uh, perversion, a whole bunch of oftentimes uh, child sacrifice. And so that's the hub for this, uh, this uh, God of fertility. Uh, and then there was a large rock there, big cave that was said in their um, pagan religion to be basically the portal to the underworld and just kind of this meaning of death and, 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 and evil and darkness. And they would have uh, all sorts of sexual sin, their orgies there, just a really, really dark place represented uh, fear, death, sin, just nastiness. That's where Jesus goes, okay? It is no accident that that's where he goes to say what he's going to say. He came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, okay? So he's got them all gathered around right there on the edge of this incredibly pagan hub. And he asked them, who do people say the Son of Man is? That was a name that he often referred to himself, the Son of Man who, like what, like, what is the word on the street? Who do people say that I am? Because he's probably about two-thirds uh, of his public ministry in. Probably about two-thirds that he's done. He's got one, uh, one more year uh, until the cross. And so he has already got a lot of influence. People were coming by the thousands. But at this point, he starts to uh, talk about the cross. He starts to talk about um, that if you're going to follow me, then you must deny yourself, uh, take up your cross, and follow me. And so like, he, he just, at some point, 
lets people walk away when he starts talking about what Bonhoeffer would call the cost of discipleship, right? And so the crowds begin to shrink. Like, I don't want to deny myself. Uh, I don't want to take on my cross. I don't want to follow you. I loved all the blessings that you were talking about, but now it's getting serious. And so the crowds were starting to shrink just a bit. Um, But there was still, he was just so... um, he had done way too much to be ignored, and so people had to have some type of an idea about who he was. So that's the question he poses. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say that you're John the Baptist, um, who was his uh, cousin that was an incredibly powerful preacher that had been uh, killed, and others say Elijah, who was a prophet from the Old Testament, come back to life a few centuries later, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, saying, like, like, they didn't know what to do with him. He was so powerful. They thought maybe he's one of these MVP prophets come back from the dead. But that's all their answers. They kind of uh, give a couple random thoughts. And then verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Okay, I, I understand what word on the street is, but you 12 have been with me for uh, a long period. You've seen, you've heard, you have been privy to things no one else was. What is your answer? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Okay, the Christ, I mean, in its very basic form, what he is saying is you are the one singular masculine noun that God was talking about when he spoke to Abraham. Like when God said, I'm going to do something through Abraham and it's going to be like the world has never seen, we're going to get the gospel message, it's going to be a blessing to all nations. That's like kind of the beginning promises of this Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one that's going to be the savior of the world. And so Peter's like, that's you. You are the the one person that all of human history centers around that we've all been looking for, the point of the Bible. Okay? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, it means Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He's like, you didn't just come up with this on your own. Uh, the Holy Spirit actually led you to this, revealed this uh, to you. My Father did this through, uh, who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Okay, let me say, let me tell you real quick what he is saying and what he is not saying. Okay, so he says, you are Peter, uh, and the word in Greek, this is important. I know some of you don't like to get off on, on language studies all the time, but it's actually really incredibly important. He says, you're Peter, and the word there he uses is Petros, which is like, you're a little rock, right, which is kind of ironic that he has that name, but he says, you're Peter, uh, and you're a little rock, and upon this Petra, this giant boulder, I will build my church. What he is not saying is, Peter, uh, you're going to be the first pope, and I'm going to build this this religion upon you. That is not what he's saying. He's saying, Peter, you're a rock. You're kind of like a chip off the old block. But on this rock, the Petra, the big monster rock named Jesus, the, 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 like you just said, I am the Christ, the son of the living God, and I am the rock that I'm going to build this church on, okay? So Jesus makes this promise He uses a little bit of a play on words there, but what he is saying is, I I think he probably, you know, there's a good chance he he did this number here. He's like, you're Peter, but on this rock, I will, what does it say? Build my church. 
That is the first time in the Bible that word shows up. The very first time the word church shows up is right here when Jesus says he is going to build something. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you see how he's shouting back to Genesis 22? Like this, this, like this, this Messiah that's promised that's going to push back the darkness and uh, take over the gates of his enemies. Like that's, that's what he's saying. So Genesis 22, I'm going to do something. Revelation, I did something. Jesus explains to us how he plans on doing this. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And again, if you think about the setting where when Jesus says that, maybe you're one of the 12, and you start looking around like, he really has uh, brought us up to Satan's front door. I mean, we're, we're, we're a long way from home. We're in spiritually hostile territory, and Jesus is making some pretty bold statements for a young single dude that has no money, no influence, no power, and 12 ragtag buddies, right? And just as a note, against all odds, he is doing it. <laughs> like if you, don't, if you don't walk away with anything else, what Jesus said he would do, that he would start a movement, uh, uh, he would build a church and even the gates of hell, like he is just an, against all odds accomplishing exactly what he said he would do. Over half of the people groups on the planet are worshiping as Lord God, Savior, and King. Today, the church has slowly and steadily been pushing back the darkness. He's doing what he said he would do. A few things I want you to notice about, particularly the last half of verse 18. Jesus declares, I will build my church, okay? That's not, I might, that's not, I hope to, that's if I, not like if I can get a little help. He just says, like, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> I'm gonna do it, and he's doing it, and he's gonna keep doing it until he's done. Um, again, you can't really fully understand the mission of Jesus without understand what he is doing to build a church, and I love um, that, like, there's an offensive nature to this. We'll look at this in a minute. Not like, like how the gospel is, is offensive to people. We get that, but I'm talking about offense versus defense, right? Jesus is talking about a church that is not just defensive, not just trying to uh, withstand attacks from the enemy. Jesus is like, no, we're taking the fight to the enemy, the gates of hell. That's what that means. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So uh, church 101, just with that uh, understanding of church, we need to uh, understand a little bit about Jesus's uh, heart for, love for, design for the church. So first question, what is church? Okay, the, the word that Jesus uses there, the very first time it shows up, is ecclesia. Okay, everybody say ecclesia. Uh, Jesus is borrowing that. It was a term that they would have known and heard, but it was a political term. Okay, it was a political term, and it would basically be defined as a group or an assembly of people that were called together for a particular purpose. Okay, a group of people that were called together for a particular purpose. That's the word ecclesia, and then he attaches it to this thing that he is going to build, and so just, even just a few basic things from that, that's what a church is. It's a group of people that have been called together for a specific purpose, namely a group of Christians who belong to Jesus, who have been called in for his glory and for his 
mission, okay? A couple things to notice because that word church has been uh, just kind of twisted and abused and diluted over the centuries. And so sometimes like you'll drive by and you'll be like, that's my church. And you're kind of pointing to a building. I've been guilty of that. But like that, that word has never applied to a building, okay? It's always a people, a group of people, not a place, okay? Uh, it's, it always refers to um, a family, not a facility, it's not a place to attend, it's a people to belong to, right? So if you were to run by and, you know, you were to take someone out of the first century, bring them to Midland uh, and, uh, and go by a church building, and if you were to say, that's my church, people would be like, I'm very confused. That's a building. It would be like if you walk by your house and you said, that's my family. It's like, <laughs> no, it's not. That is a building, Right? It's very different, okay? Church refers to a group of people purchased by Jesus, belong to him through the gospel, have been brought in with a purpose for his glory and his mission on the planet. That's just very basically what is a church. It's a family, a group of people. Two different expressions uh, because we, we kind of go back and forth between these, and it's helpful to know that they're both biblical. I call them a capital C church uh, and a lower C church, okay? A uh, capital C church, which is just a, an expression of the church, uh, which is all true Christians, everyone who truly belongs to Christ, truly has repented of their sin, and truly has believed in him, all Christians in all times from all places comprise one collective church, okay? Capital C church that will be together with Jesus forever. Lower C church refers to small expressions like this of local churches that are gathered together. Uh, and you need to know that most of the time, there are both in the scriptures, but most of the time in the New Testament, when it talks about church, it's talking about this. It's talking about a little c, lowercase c, uh, local expression of the church. Think about Galatians when Paul opens up and he says, to the churches that are in Galatia. Okay, he's not talking about the capital C, global church. He's talking about local expressions to the churches that are in the area of Galatia. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, to the church, of God that is in Corinth. That was an actual set defined group of people that all belonged to Jesus. They were in the same geographical area. They, they belonged to each other through this local church. Revelation 2 and 3, we preached through this years ago. There's seven different letters um, that Jesus writes to seven different local churches. Even in James, when it says, if you're sick, go find the elders of your church and let them pray over you. Like there's a big C capital church of all Christians, all times, all places. And the lower sea where God has designed every single Christian to belong in these expressions. That's the two expressions of the church. Now, I think this is helpful to know because as you zoom out, if you look at local churches, uh, every local church has a life cycle. Okay, every local church is born and planted, serves the purpose that Jesus has for them, and dies, ends, comes to an end, right? All of the churches that the, the apostle Paul planted, none of them are here anymore. They're gone. They, they serve their purpose. So if you look, if you zoom out and look at local churches, they, they serve a purpose for a time, but there's not one church that has lasted 2,000 years. But if you zoom out, the church 
where Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is actually just exactly what has happened. It has been growing and growing and growing and pushing back the darkness and, and displaying the glory of Christ through his gospel. And it has gone from 13 dudes in Philippi to over 2 billion people pushing back. He is doing exactly what he promised he would do. Two helpful metaphors about the church. Number one, and there's more than this, but these, just for sake of time, are probably the most common, most helpful. Number one, uh, the church is referred to as the body of Christ. Everybody say body. Um, This, I think, refers to more of the function of the church. What is the function of the church? Well, we're supposed to be the body of Christ. Well, before the church was the body, what was the body? Jesus' body was the body, okay? And what does a body do? You're like, well, mine creaks. (laughs) You know, mine, if I go upstairs, it just sounds like fireworks are going off. Like, what does a body do? A body, uh, it it does things. Jesus' body, when he was in the flesh on earth, he hugged people, he uh, preached, he uh, performed miracles, he prayed. He did a lot of work here when he was the body. He He had a function. So what is the body of Christ? We exist to do the, the things that Jesus did, right? I know this is a, a bit cliche, but I think it's accurate that we're uh, in, in, in some form or fashion, the hands and the feet of Jesus, that we're supposed to do what he did. He, he accomplished his work and his ministry through his body here, which is the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says this, and it's actually the same idea in Romans 12. Uh, So if you're looking for some homework this week, that's the two places to go uh, to talk about the body of Christ. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians, now, and he's talking to a local church, a group of believers in Corinth. Now you are the body of Christ and individually you're members of it. Okay, this is, this is incredibly important uh, because in both of those places, it talks about just the individual Christian has been given certain spiritual gifts and beyond that, even passions and things. Why? So that they come in as a part of the body of Christ, so that the body of Christ is a more healthy expression if all sorts of different Christians belong to it. It says like some of you are eyes, right? Some of you are ears, some of you are noses, some of you are legs, some of us are armpits. Like there's just all these different parts of a body. And Paul's like, listen, the reason God has done that The reason God's given us diverse gifting and passions is so that we come together and we actually get to uh, function as a diverse body with all different parts. So if you're a believer, you have a gift that was meant to be employed in a local church for for the sake of us being the body of Christ. First metaphor, the church is the body of Christ. I think that has to do a lot with function. Second thing, uh, the church is the bride of Christ. Everybody say bride. For you dudes in the room, you're like, I don't like that. I don't like being called a bride. Hold on with me. It is, it is a, it's a beautiful thing. It is not an offensive thing um, that we get to be called the bride of Christ. I think this has mainly to do not with function but with relationship, okay? Uh, we are in a relationship through a covenant with God. God and the church have a covenant relationship that has, it's a covenant sealed by the, by the blood of Christ. 
And one of the covenants that we have been given is supposed to be a picture for us to understand that that's the covenant of marriage, okay? This is one of the many reasons marriage is such an unbelievably important thing for us to get right and to understand as a covenant because there's a lot at stake to to marring the covenant of marriage. Because if you mar the covenant of marriage, then that tends to give people a very distorted view of the covenant that we have with God. Let me read to you uh, Ephesians 5. If you've been to a wedding, really good chance this showed up because this is a very pointed text about marriage. But Paul says in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives. How, Paul? How should we love our wives? As Christ loved who? The church. There was a very special, unique way that Jesus Christ loved the church, big C, capital church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. Uh, fast forward down to verse 32. So he, 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 at this point, Paul's just been talking about marriage. Okay, then verse 32, Paul says, oh, by the way, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, we are the bride of Christ, meaning we have been brought into a covenant relationship by Jesus himself. We get to wear, quote unquote, white to the wedding, not because we're sinless, but because we're forgiven. Okay? It says he has granted us the ability to become united with him forever in a covenant not sealed by our works, but sealed by his works and his blood. That's like we, the, the church, we are not just the, the body of Christ with a job to do, but we are the bride of Christ with a relationship that can never be destroyed because it is intact by God himself, not by us. A few things. To note, to think about as we talk about Jesus' design for the church. Number one, you saw that there in Matthew 16. It's his church, okay? Jesus said, I will build my church, okay? That's so important to know. That means that this church, every church, every true church belongs to Jesus that at the end of the day, Jesus is the chief shepherd. Uh, he, we're in places where he has spoken clearly, it is definitive. It's not up for grabs. It's not up for debate. We exist for his glory. We exist for his mission. Uh, we belong to him. We're his possession. He takes care of us. It's his church. It's his church. Number two, the church is offensive, okay? Again, I'm not talking about, you know, saying things that are offensive. And can we agree Jesus is a very offensive person? True story? If you're shaking your head, no, you haven't read <laughs> the book. Like some of the stuff he says, all, you know, not all of it, but every person truly is offended by the message of Jesus because it says well, we're sinners. We can't change ourselves. We need him. We need his grace. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the offensive nature of the church that we are supposed to be marching forward with a job to do. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He doesn't say, oh, this is my church and, and the gates of heaven are not going to be completely bashed in by the enemy, right? He, he talks about this, and, and this is why for years now, we have talked about that we are a gospel-centered, missional family because we are supposed to be pushing back the darkness. 
like taking the fight to Satan, going to the places where Jesus is not known, going to the place where people are not loved, going to the place where his name has not been heard. Uh, it's just by nature, uh, we're on offense, we're not on defense. Number three, um, the church grows mature Christians, okay? Uh, and I want to point this out, one, because it's in Colossians, uh, two, because uh, th- there's just kind of some stunted growth that if we're not devoted to a local expression of the church, uh, it's just, we, we kind of... D- there's a stunt in our spiritual growth. Colossians says this, again, to a local church, Colossians 1.28, him, Jesus, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. One of the missions of the church is to present everyone mature in Christ, okay? Here's the challenge with that. Here's where it gets really messy with a church with people, okay? Uh, let's say you have a scale of one to 10. One is your brand new Christian. You, you, you met Jesus today. 10 is you are, you, you've matured. You are not quite, you're not like Jesus, you still got a ways to go, but you're a long way from where you were, okay? If we're trying to mature everyone, then the moment someone kind of matures in their journey, someone else jumps on and just starts brand new. And everybody's at very different stages, but Lord willing, we're all headed in the same direction, trying to present maturity in Christ. Listen to what H.B. Charles, he's a, a contemporary preacher, says that I agree with, I would commend you to think about this. Nothing grows a Christian like a serious commitment to a single church, week in, week out for years and years. Not conferences, not social media, not even personal devotions in the same way. The local church is where mature Christians are slowly forged in the fires of mundane faithfulness. All right, here's my, here's my concern, and then I've got a closing. Um, again, I think we would all agree that as we mature, our priorities should begin to match Jesus' priority And I hope that you've just seen Jesus, like the church, is a high priority for Jesus. And statistically for decades, it has become less and less of a priority for um, proclaiming, self-proclaiming Christians in the West. There was a new study that came out I just saw recently from Lifeway uh, Research. And they were asking questions about, like, if if somebody 30 years ago was devoted to a church, they would would participate and attend and be part of 50 Sundays a year. Now that number is like the same people that are committed. It's like 25 and in Midland is probably less than that. Like, why is that? And they, they, like, there were all sorts of answers, but one of the answers was a big reason people just don't dev- aren't devoted to the church, especially on a Sunday, it said uh, bad weather, okay? It said, well, bad weather, well, if it's, if it's rainy or if it's windy or if it's cold or if it's hot, okay? You know what the other one was? No lie, good weather. <laughs> it's like, well, it's just so beautiful. I got other things to do. I've got other priorities. Like, I can go through the whole thing, but like, sh- shouldn't that alarm us? If, if, the, like, if the church that Jesus died for and that we're supposed to be given our lives for, that's for our maturity and for his display and for just like us to be the body and the like, shouldn't that alarm us if that's like number three or four or five down the list? It's terrifying. Like, there's a lot of things that if I could wave my wand, I I would change about the West. This is, like, close to the top of the list. Like, some of us, we treat sports with, like, this utmost dedication. Like, I guarantee you I won't miss a Cowboys game this year. Oh, I I wouldn't even imagine missing one of my kids' sports team. But church, eh, it's not that important. Like, doesn't it reveal priorities? And I'm, you know, again, like, I'm, I'm the pastor of a local church saying this. I get that. 
Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to get you to love the church because I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor because I think Jesus loves the church. So I would love for you to really think through, do, are you devoted to the church? The church should be such an incredibly high priority. I'm not just talking about gathering on Sundays. That's important. I know living life out on the, uh, on the ground with other Christians is, is super important as well. I'm just concerned. So, like, this is the question that I would pose to you. Like, are your priorities over time matching up and changing towards his priorities? Are they just adapting to the culture that we live in? Are our, are our priorities the exact same as our neighbors that do not claim to know Jesus? They should be different. Are sports good? Yeah, sports are good. Are the Cowboys good? No, <laughs> they're not. <laughs> Don't waste your time. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm moving on. Uh, 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 gosh, there, there's about a million ways to land this plane, um, but the one I was thinking about last night I'm going to jump back to Revelation 22. I'm going to read two texts, one from Revelation 22, which is like future, and then one from Isaiah, which is 700 B.C.-ish. Because if you see what he did in Genesis, what he's doing in Revelation, what he promised to do in Matthew 16, Jesus is up to something. He's doing something powerful, miraculous on the planet. He is saving people. He's changing lives. He's pushing back the darkness. He's invading every people group on the planet, and he has invited us to be part of that story, okay? Revelation 22, 16 says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root of and the descendant of David, okay? I am so over today. Not like I'm over, I'm, I'm going over. I'm not, I, lo- I love this. I love all about this. Uh, you're like, I am over it. It's a long time. I, he's, I'm the root and the descendant. He's basically saying I'm the cause and the effect of David. I, I created David and I was also born from his lineage. I am the root of David and the descendant. Uh, David kind of fulfills that Genesis 22 promise that God says through Abram, like David was like, it's all in there. I'm the root. David came from me. I came from David. I'm the bright and the morning star. And here it is. This is what, like God just kept bringing this to mind the last two days. The spirit, like the spirit of God links up and testifies with what? The bride. Who's the bride? The church. He's like, the spirit of God and the bride of Christ, the church, they both are testifying, saying the same thing. Come. It's this invitation to join something Jesus is doing and he won't stop till he's done. The spirit testifies with the church, with the bride, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That is no doubt a reference back to Isaiah 55. I'll read it and I am done. This was just a, it's just a promise of the gospel. Okay, come. I mean, that's what, I, that's what Jesus, I'm sure, had in his mind when he was writing Revelation. And this is the invitation to everyone, okay? This is the invitation of the Holy Spirit of God and the church, the bride. We, we're saying the same thing. Come, everyone who thirsts. Okay, that's not obviously not talking about physical thirst. 
It's like everyone whose soul is longing for something and no matter how much you try to fill it with sex and with money and with work and with power and with popularity, like you're just still thirsty. Like, you, like I thought I'd be more fulfilled by this money, but I have it. And now it just kind of can keep me dull till the next paycheck. You know, I thought I would be satisfied, but I've been in so many relationships, giving myself out to so many people. I'm thirstier than when I started. That's what he's talking about. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy. <laughs> How do you buy stuff without money? If he's like, if you don't have, like, if you are just at the end of your rope, you're so thirsty, you're so empty, show up to the gospel, show up to Jesus, and you can buy everything without a penny. Why? Because Jesus paid for it and he gives it. Who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which was, does not satisfy Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. This is the testimony and the witness of the Spirit of God and the church. For anyone that's not a Christian, the invitation is come. You're thirsty. Jesus is the water your soul was designed for. And he'll give it free of cost because Christ died for sinners so that we might be saved by grace through faith in him. Let's pray. Jesus, you love the church. You Jesus are the one who just designed the very blueprints of the church, that your, your love for the church, your sacrifice for the church. I, I just pray that that would catch our attention and maybe shake us up a little bit to reprioritize the things that you prioritize. God, I do pray it's not a legalistic thing, but it truly is us being found where you designed to place us. God, for anyone truly in this room who, if they're really honest, they get down really honest in their soul. They are thirsty. They're empty. Maybe they feel hopeless. And all the things they're trying are just ending up in a cul-de-sac. I pray that you might open their eyes to Jesus who said he is the water of life. And if you come to Jesus, you'll never be thirsty again. I pray that we wouldn't try to show up with money, but we would show up with empty pockets knowing that you give good things to people who ask. I pray for this local church. What a blessing it has been to me over the years. I pray that you would help us to be faithful, to present people mature in Christ, and to be a welcome place for people who are just beginning their journey and have no idea what they're doing or where they're going, but you might mature them as well. God, I pray that you would, in this next season, um, with land, with building projects, that you would keep us very unified as a church and keep our eyes focused on the mission. We thank you that you will not stop until you have pushed back the darkness, until you have infiltrated every people group on the planet. And then one day we'll stand next to brothers and sisters of every color and we'll worship you together. I pray these next few moments are just a, a small picture and a foretaste of that. Jesus, we love you. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.